Yeah, good afternoon everyone. Uh, my name is Koji. Over there we have uh, Ben. Um, so yeah, welcome to this session on technological sovereignty. Um, we'll be talking about uh, software licenses and uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, so in this session I'll talk for 20 minutes, then I'll hand over to Ben. We'll talk for 20 minutes uh, and then uh, we'll hold a discussion before we go for our afternoon tea. Um, yeah, just so you know, um, this session will be recorded. Uh, so, yeah, it's right there. Um, and there's a lot of content that uh, I'd like to cover. But, um, yeah, feel free to jump in with any quick questions or comments that you might have. Okay, um, let's just get an idea of who we've got in the room. Um, who here um, is comfortable with things like um, PCs, smartphones, the internet? Well, okay, so yeah, most people, um, yeah, it's good to see. Um, but does anyone have any concerns about digital technology? Um, what, what? Okay, well, yeah, similar number of people. Um, yeah, so I'd love to ask like, what those kind of concerns are, but I'll just um, move along. Um, <laughs> just because we'll cover those kind of things later. Right? Um, okay, so uh, who knows something about how to make software or or how it's made. Okay, so about yeah, a third of you, maybe a half. Yeah. Okay. Um, some of you might have thought that um, free software is about software you don't have to pay for. Um, not meaning to pay for it might be true, but the free and free software is about. Um, I refer to free. So I'll go into that a bit now. So um, software is considered free if its users, the people who use the software, have um, the four essential software freedoms. Uh, and the first one is to be able to run the software. So this means that users must be able to run the software on the device uh, at any time, for any purpose, and without any imposed restrictions. You know, restrictions like DRM and you know, like license um, issues that, that might come across. Uh, freedom one, the freedom to study how the software works and change it as they wish. So um, changing is the key part. Um, actually, study and change are both important, but um, that relies on being able to access the software's source code. Um, does everyone know what source code is? Yep, okay, no need to explain it. Okay, so it's, yeah, basically it's just like, like lots of programming code. Yeah. Okay, so um, freedom two, the freedom to share exact copies of the software. So, you know, I make a software or you make a software and you want other people to use it. Um, yeah, this freedom is essential for allowing people to obtain software. And then finally, um, freedom three, the freedom to share modifications. So if I um, give free software to someone else and then they um, want to change it, then they're able to. So this allows people to work on free software projects together. Okay, uh, who, has heard, who has heard of open source software? Okay, that, that term seems to be uh, quite common. Um, so, although in practical terms, free software and open source software, um, they're kind of the same. Um, philosophically, they're... Yeah, I'll show this. So, um, in my mind, that's the kind of relationship between free software and open source software. Um, but philosophically, they're um, two different things. So, um, open source software diverged from uh, free software in the late 1990s when um, the open source software community wanted to um, encourage and um, promote corporate adoption of community-driven software. 
Um, to be inclusive of both philosophies, some people use the term free and open source software. But uh, while it's good to welcome more people into the community, um, I believe we've got to talk about what we want those um, software communities to accomplish. That is to, um, to uphold human rights and to make the world a better place. Okay, so why free software? What are the advantages of uh, free software? Well, uh, let's think in reverse first. So, um, not free software puts users um, at the mercy of the software developers. And we'll go through that a bit now. So does anyone here regularly buy licenses to use software? Um, yeah, just yell out some examples. Um, Adobe. Adobe, yeah. A vast. A okay, yeah, I'm not sure what that is to be honest. Um, you don't do Microsoft. <laughs> yeah, Microsoft, uh, Office, yeah, that kind of thing. Um, you've got to like, keep buying a license to use it. Well, if you use free software, you might be able to free yourself from that um, by switching to it. Um, and we can go through some examples um, toward the end. Um, virtually anyone who has a device and internet access can download and use free software. Uh, next, we'll talk about um, anti-features. Uh, so not free software is often littered with anti-features such as advertising, bloatware, um, restrictions, spyware, backdoors, yeah, um, that, those kind of nasties. Um, and you know, a lot of those are commercially driven, so um, to yeah, like advertising for example. Um, some software allows the software company to um, forcibly push software updates and um, like disable the software to lock users out or um, remotely disable, uh, delete content. Uh, for example, I think that Amazon's Kindle allows people to uh, allows Amazon to delete stuff off um, people's Kindles. Uh, I think that happened to George Orwell's 1984. We've yeah. just legislated a lot of this stuff, haven't we? Oh, sorry. We've just legislated a lot of this stuff to be required in this country in terms of pushing updates to people to break security of their phones. And things. Uh, um, mm. What kind of legislation is it to in, um, uh, ensure that those things are in place or against it? To, to, uh, to add anti-features, basically, to ensure that the oh, government can push yeah. in, you know, spyware onto your phone or get backdoor access to apps or whatever. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm not familiar with that to be honest, but I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, that, that can be quite concerning. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, we should call that kind of stuff malware, right? Let's call it for what it is: malicious software, because it's companies imposing their will on um, its users. Free software, on the other hand, doesn't have as much of that stuff. So rather than being dependent on um, software developers for technical support and troubleshooting. Free software users help themselves and they help each other. Coding improvements are community driven too. Um, with a free software model, people contribute to a digital commons um, that the wider community can benefit from. So, you know, everyone can get access to that software and um, use it to, yeah, rather than that, um, like, so called intellectual property being locked away. It also allows people to become masters of technology rather than remain slaves to it. And I think that's an important part. Um, and also, regarding security, software that's built for applications like encryption, password management, and secure communication must have some kind of verifiable security. So the community must be able to um, check that the software, um, or gain some com confidence that the software is secure, or is secure for secu um, it's good for secu security-sensitive applications. Um, speaking of security, um, there's some recent there's a recent bill that's um, come up. Has anyone heard about the assistance and access bill? I think that was actually what you were. Oh, that you were. Yeah. 
Yeah, I have heard of that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is Peter Dutton who put it through recently. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, well, in a nutshell, this bill would expand powers to hack computers and um, compel tech companies to weaken their services. So how this, how this kind of legislation would um, affect the security of free software is not yet known, but it's worth keeping an eye on. Okay, despite the advantages uh, that free software might have, um, making a switch um, has its challenges. Um, so as you might be all well aware, um, our capitalist society promotes um, infinite material growth and concentration of power at the expense of uh, democracy, uh, social justice, and ecological well-being. Uh, tech companies gain influence through advertising, um, planned obsolescence, filtering results, um, indoctrination at schools. You might see a lot of Microsoft products at schools, for example, um, big data and spying on their users. Uh, some tech companies contribute to community-driven software, and that's awesome, but some other companies um, yeah, corrupted or they impeded. Um, yeah, who uses Android? Yeah. yeah, so it's been branded as um, open source, but it's actually owned by Google. And there's also a lot of like Google apps on there, and they're all closed source proprietary, so you've got no idea what they're doing. <coughs> they could be logging your keystrokes, you know, setting a password, password and credit card information to Google. Who knows? I'm not saying that that's what they do, but yeah. yeah. Um, also, some tech companies have a policy of zero con contribution back to the community, um, which they impose on their staff. Obviously, that's, that's in, that impedes um, free software and community-driven software. So given this IT landscape, it's not surprising that um, many people don't know about free software or uh, find it challenging to switch to it. Um, also, free software, like other techy things, um, it's not a magic wand to solve a lot of problems. So, uh, free so uh, software freedom is just the first step to the liberation of digital technology. We also need to uh, free up our uh, hardware, networks, and content. Uh, let's not forget that um, some people are disadvantaged by um, technology or don't have ac access to technology. So, there's a risk of excluding people as well by relying on tech solutions. Uh, also, we've got to be careful with um, techno optimism, as um, Samuel Alexander mentioned this morning. So technology can be good, but um, techno fixes alone won't solve our political, social, um, ecological problems. Okay, examples. Um, yeah, there's free software for email clients, um, office packages, uh, social media, games, um, many other things. I'll bring up a few software examples that are hopefully relevant or uh, interesting to us uh, here at NEO. Okay, uh, who knows what Linux is? Yep, three quarters of you. Okay, who uses it? Okay, about third of you. Okay, that's good. Um, uh, initially released in 1991, Linux is a family of um, free software operating systems. Uh, it's built around what's called the uh, Linux kernel. Uh, Linux is an alternative to Windows and Mac OS, just so you know, um, in case you want to know what it's used for. Uh, people often choose Linux for its security, reliability, low cost, uh, customizability, and freedom from, freedom from vendor lockings. So, yeah, there's a few benefits to using Linux. Um, and also, 98% of the world's 500 fastest supercomputers use Linux. And it's also a good operating system for um, desktop PCs as well. 
Um, and yeah, there's many Linux distributions to choose from. Debian, Fedora, um, there's a bunch of others. Yeah, uh, I'm not that familiar with all of them, but yeah. Um, there's a lot of options to explore uh, based on your needs. Um, yeah, I'd recommend Ubuntu for beginners. It's pretty uh, well yeah. OS X in terms of the UI these days. Um, yeah, Ubuntu is um, beginner friendly, um, probably more so than Debian. Um, but there are some uh, things in Ubuntu that some people may not desire, um, like uh, some um, hooks into Amazon. Yeah. So it depends what you're looking for. If you're a beginner, then Ubuntu could be good. Uh, does anyone use Firefox to browse the internet? Okay, so yeah, about a third of you. Um, what other browsers do you use? Like, um, okay, who uses um, Google Chrome? Okay, so about the same number. Okay. Well, yeah, Google Chrome happens to be the most popular from the stats I've seen, um, fastly, but Firefox is the most popular free software browser. Um, it's, noted, it's noted for its better security and privacy over many other browsers. But um, I'll mention another browser called Tor Browser. Uh, it's based on Firefox, so it's got the same code, but it's been uh, it's been modified. It's been hardened to um, take extra steps to protect anonymity and privacy. So um, that allows people to um, around the world. They could be in oppressive countries, or um, they may be victims of um, abuse. Um, those kind of people to um, circumvent um, internet censorship and to uh, prevent themselves. Uh, from being uh, tracked, uh, their internet activity from being tracked. There's another one called Brave, which would you, would you uh, know, yeah. is that gives you privacy protections, like no tracking and um, Yeah, I'm not sure what features um, Brave has. I believe it's a, it's a free software. It's, um, um, it's, it's kind of meant to connect to the new internet, I think, Brave. It's all about IPFS and blockchain stuff in it. But by, by default, it's, it's privacy protected, so there's yeah. no tracking rather than you having to turn it on. Um, mm. So it says like things like, I've saved you X number of minutes you know, when using your browser because you haven't been connected to these services. Okay, so yeah, Firefox in, in some ways is like not as privacy protective as some people would like, so they have to like make conf like configuration files to make Firefox more privacy. Uh, privacy protecting, whereas Tor Browser has a lot of those privacy protections by default, and it also bounces um, its internet traffic through um, a bunch of voluntary, voluntarily run nodes around the world. Um, it's about ten thousand of them, maybe, and it's done in a way that um, the um, anyone who's spying on the network can't easily um, determine who's connecting to who. Um, that's one way that they try to um, protect anonymity. But yeah, um, so Tor's got those characteristics. Um, given that inter uh, everyone's internet activity has been um, continuously surveilled and blocked, um, some digital rights activists, um, they uh, recommend that people always use Tor. So it's, it's got a pretty high profile. I don't know if it's the best solution or whatever, but yeah, it's, it's there. It's available if you want to use it. Can I just ask a question? I've heard about Tor as a way of um, surfing the dark internet, is that? Ah, uh, yeah. That's how I've been introduced <laughs> yeah, to it. Yeah, so, so I'm wondering. Yeah. So that's right, um, Tor, Tor allows you to access the dark web. Um, so what that is, is um, well, there's what's called onion addresses, 
Um, and if you pick up the um, bunch of resources, the, the sheets there, there will be some onion addresses uh, on the table. Um, I've printed out some resources. Um, but it's just um, URLs that have .onion on the end, and Tor allows you to connect to those um, addresses. And yeah, you, those can be used for all sorts of reasons. Um, good reasons, bad reasons. <coughs> okay, um, moving along. Wikipedia is a um, significant contributor to the, to the commons, the digital commons. Um, that's driven by a free software called MediaWiki. Okay. Okay, um, Wikipedia's open model, which allows the community to edit pages, uh, has led to a um, success that made closed um, Microsoft and Carter-like solutions obsolete. Um, has anyone heard of the Open Food Network? Yep. Okay, so there's a few. Yep. Well, that actually started in Australia in, Australia in 2012, so not too long ago and, uh, from Australia. Uh, that's free software as well. And she was just here, yeah. one of the people who started it. She's coming back for the discussion. Yeah, I'm sure there's a couple of people affiliated with the project. Darren Sharp's affiliated with it as well. Um, I think he had part in it. Yeah. Um, since I'm running out of time, I won't go too much into it. I'm going to talk about um, public money, public code briefly. That's a European campaign for free software. Um, the campaign asserts that software developed using taxpayers' money should be released as free software, which makes sense, right? If you're paying, the public's paying for the software, don't, don't make it private. Um, in Europe, this software freedom allows the public to contribute code, and it allows governments such as cities to um, share code, um, share code between each other. Um, this enhances cooperation, transparency, democratization, digital sovereignty, and human rights protections. Um, there's, some, there's something that's kind of in this sphere called Code for Australia, which I don't know too much about, but might, but might be worth um, looking into. But, yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, maybe Australia's My Health Records, My Gov, all that kind of stuff should be free software. Um, I don't think it's licenses free software, unfortunately. It's a shame. Can I uh, yeah. signal private messenger to that list? Um, um, yeah, um, I can't list 100 examples, but yeah, I use Signal. We need, we need secure chat. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. Um, so you use Signal, I guess. I use Signal. Um, it's a secure communication software. If you've got a phone number, you can use Signal. Um, and what's our Facebook Messenger in secret mode and Twitter direct messages all use the same protocol? Yeah, that's right. So um, I'll, I'll move on though. So let's very quickly how I explore how we can contribute to uh, free software. Um, yeah, so there's a bunch of ways. Um, yeah, if you can all use free software, um, that would make free software more useful. Just, uh, thinking about the network effect. Um, you know, if everyone's using Facebook, that makes Facebook extremely useful. That's why Facebook is um, very strong these days. I guess, but if everyone's using free software, um, that can strengthen the free software community too. Um, does anyone have? Oh, does anyone think they can contribute to free software in other ways other than just using it? Anyone want to touch on any of these points? Yeah. Um, we're keen to see the development of or the creation of developer co-op, so a co-op of developers locally to support. Okay. 
projects, and we've got some um, yep. some some pipeline projects that might be able to be able to foster that. So that would be really cool if anyone's interested. Yeah, that'd be good. Uh, so um, locally in Australia. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking to uh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I would say oh, yeah. documentation is a great way to contribute, and a lot of yeah. developers, that's all, that's kind of their inroad into a project, is they start by just improving documentation because they're trying to figure it out. Yeah, that's right. So um, that's a good way to understand the software, and then um, then they can hook into actually working on it. I think yeah. a very complete contribution would be write the code to its plug and play. Ah, uh, sorry. If people could write their code to its plug and play. Um, rather than having to fiddle around computers, which people, other people don't like doing, don't know how to Just conscious of time, sorry. Um, so I'll just very quickly talk about another topic. Um, so ways to push back against um, technological surveillance and capitalism, because um, I think that's important for um, like maintaining our, our freedom of uh, speech, speech association, um, uh, democracy. Um, it's going to be relevant to people like us working in the new economy who might be working with um, like maybe certain people that are vulnerable. For example, does anyone um, associate themselves or who, people they're connected to into any of these groups? Okay, so yeah, probably at least a third. Um, yeah, so given the digital connectedness that exists, I reckon we've um, I think it's important that we keep um, keep everyone safe from um, like leaking information. And for the people listed listed there, um, a leak of information might lead to operational failure, financial loss, embarrassment, harassment, um, even uh, physical danger. Um, and uh, if we're not careful, we might potentially be up against that those kind of consequences. So um, the less information we leak. Um, the safer we'll be, and the less um, power we give to select surveillance capitalism and the people who track us. Even things like if someone gives us our, um, if someone asks us for our ID or our home address, um, ask them a question: Why do you need it? Um, conversely, uh, we can obtain consent um, before taking photos of people or before um, uploading information about people. Um, also, Darren Sharp at last year's conference. Um, he mentioned about Facebook as being a digital scanner that collects um, all sorts of data. Uh, I think it's, um, it's good to keep in mind. So rather than using software and services that exploit us every time we use it, um, we use software and services that are secure and respect our privacy. Um, you might have heard of statements like, privacy is dead, data is in your oil, uh, and we have nothing to hide. Well, sometimes those, sta those statements are used in an attempt to normalize unjust power. Um, if we recognize that, um, even if uh, those statements have some truth, um, we should reject them every time we hear them. And we can also ditch phrases like, let's Skype and Google it. Uh, lastly, if you're concerned about this kind of stuff, um, yeah, I encourage you all to get politically active. And I'm sure you guys know, uh, you people know um, more ways to do that than I would. And also to support organisations uh, who fight for our digital rights. Uh, that's all from me. Uh, thank you very much. So um, I'll pass over to Ben. Ben is lead organization, uh, organizer of Free Software Melbourne. Uh, I've been to a few of um, their events, uh, including Software Freedom Day in September. 
And I believe Ben would like to speak uninterrupted for 20 minutes, and then we'll take some questions. At, um, we'll have a discussion at the end. Yep. My bet's fairly finely tuned, because uh, uh, software licensing, which is the, the area I'll focus on, is pretty huge. Um, there's huge swaths of it we'll skip. Uh, if we looked at everything, we'd be here for hours and hours and hours. Um, as Kirsty mentioned, I'm the organiser of Free Software Melbourne. Uh, I also organise the annual Software Freedom Day in Melbourne. Um, and I'm a civic hacker and a free software advocate. Um, so we'll have a look at the, the nuts and bolts of uh, some actual licences and how the mechanics of them work and why it might matter for you to license your software projects uh, in a certain way or be selective about the software, the, the licensing of software you use. Um, sort of as Koji mentioned, like just being supportive of and using free software uh, can help encourage that kind of behaviour in, in others. Um, so the first uh, nasty term to, to pull apart to understand software licensing is intellectual property. Um, and this is a, a grab bag of lots of different legal uh, fields. So intellectual property isn't a, a single legal field. It's a conglomeration of many different ones. And which fields are included and not included can depend on the jurisdiction of the country. Um, but for Australia, um, we have, uh, or well, almost every jurisdiction has copyright, trademark, and patent law uh, under the umbrella of intellectual property. Um, and in Australia, we also include uh, designs and uh, plant breeding rights of all things. There are big five intellectual property rights in Australia, um, but copyright's the, the main one we'll be focused on. There is some overlap, so uh, trademark has a pretty famous example uh, with Firefox, which uh, I won't have to explain now that Koji's already been talking about it. Um, there was an issue where uh, Mozilla, the company who makes Firefox, had to enforce their trademark uh, even against people who that they wanted to cooperate with. Uh, so for a, a while, uh, Linux distributions had to distribute a program called Ice Weasel, which was Firefox with a different logo and a different name. And that was so that they could protect their trademark, because if they let some people get away with it, then they lose their right to enforce trademark. So sometimes software licensing overlaps. Uh, Mozilla updated their most recent license to make exceptions for this case. So uh, now Firefox can be packaged as usual. Um, but generally, uh, copyright is the, uh, the part of law we're going to be interested in. Um, and unfortunately, again, copyright is a, a legal thing that's made up by each country and each jurisdiction. So uh, the rules could vary from place to place. Um, but in general, for Australia, uh, we have automatic assignment of cop copyright. So there's no extra action you have to perform. As soon as you create an artistic or a digital or a, a program, a, a digital work, uh, copyright is assigned to you, the author, immediately, automatically. Um, and the duration of copyright in Australia is generally uh, 70 years plus life. There are some uh, exceptions to that, but for, for most uh, purposes, 70 years <coughs> plus, plus life. Um, and, in, and this automatic assignment of copyright to the owner is exclusive use and distribution. So if I don't 
do anything else uh, after I've created a piece of software, no one else on the planet is allowed to use uh, or read or uh, compile or run the program. Um, to some degree, publishing it on a place like GitHub uh, implies that there's a license for you to read it because I'm publishing it in a, in a well-known place. But there's no, there's no such implication that you should be allowed to run it or compile it. So this is why software licensing is important uh, and comes to the rescue, at least for open source projects, there's a, a handy solution for us. Um, so as I mentioned, they use uh, copyright law and explicitly grant rights to users that would other be otherwise be denied by that blanket exception. Um, so they can quite selectively grant or deny specific rights um, or conditions on their users. And along with rights, they can also impose responsibilities on their users. So this is why uh, some licenses will get the, the term viral applied to them, because they impose a restriction on you that uh, forces you to impose restrictions on people further along the chain. So there's this sort of contagious or viral nature to it. Um, and we'll get into why that that's the case. Um, and uh, the, the software license is simply defined by being written down. So you don't have to be a lawyer to create a software license. Um, you, whatever you write in a license file is now a software license. Um, but please don't, because uh, one of the biggest problems in software licensing is license proliferation. Uh, the fact that there are already thousands, if not tens of thousands, of software licenses out there. Um, and one of them probably fits your bill, and so writing your own license uh, just introduces uncertainty. Uh, a classic case of this, which is uh, rather entertaining, is the JSON data format. Uh, data formats aren't super exciting, but this data format made itself exciting by having in its license contract a license, a clause stating that the software must be used for good and not for evil. That sounds like a, a laudable goal, uh, but uh, the legal and, and, and the author has stated publicly many times that he would never consider enforcing this clause. Still, uh, companies and individuals have refused to adopt the license um, because of the legal uncertainty around that term. Maybe the project will be adopted by someone who's much less benign in the future. There's no way we can guarantee that won't happen. Uh, and there's no way that, that we can guarantee that they won't convince a, a court that what you've done is, is evil. Um, so, you know, just introducing fun little clauses can cause uncertainty and stop people getting involved in your project. Um, so sticking to one of the major licenses we'll sort of talk about today um, is, is just good for community involvement in your project, if nothing else. Um, so now that you barely know what a software license is, we'll talk about dual licensing. Um, this is mainly just because it clears up a few sort of side issues. Um, so as the author of a software, I can license it as I wish, and I can re-license it as I wish. And I can license it three times at the same time, all incompatible licenses, and that is totally fine, because I'm the copyright holder. Now, all of those versions will start, will legally exist as independent entities. Um, so the most common result in this is a dual open source and proprietary licensing. Uh, 
Um, this is very common amongst developer tools, maybe something you haven't really come across. Um, but uh, Oracle is, is probably one of the biggest users of this kind of license and, and most famous, uh, where they have a MySQL Community Edition and a MySQL Enterprise Edition. And there are a few little bits of secret source in the Enterprise Edition, but fundamentally they're the same source code uh, and licensed under completely incompatible licenses, one of which is bought and is closed source, one of which is given away and is open source and controlled by the community for the most part. Um, so yeah, so this is just to point out that the, uh, the actual owner of the copyright can pretty much do whatever they want, um, but then as users of software, we only get to take what license we've been able to, to get the software with. So I can't have the open source license for SQL Server acquire an enterprise version of SQL Server and think I'm okay running it. Uh, they are considered two separate legal entities and not at all the same thing under law uh, anymore. So, uh, and yeah, this can also cause friction with getting people into a project where you have to get explicit permission from people to uh, allow re-licensing of software. And so this can result in having to have uh, an agreement when you start contributing to the process to the project um, so yeah this kind of dual licensing probably isn't the kind of thing you want um, but yeah it's just there to highlight the uniqueness of uh, your power as an author um, so if we look at we can look at licenses in a lot of different ways um, we can kind of just split all licenses into permissive and restrictive. So this is a, just a subset of licenses, which ones they are aren't, aren't hugely important. But we can just say, put a line down the middle, all these licenses are permissive, all these licenses are restrictive. Um, and so the, the permissive licenses are characterized by very minimal restrictions uh, on anyone at all and very minimal in size. Um, and these espouse the open source principles. I'm glad I don't have to go into open source versus free software if you're all here for the last session. Um, so these minimalist licenses are the open source um, licenses. Uh, and if we break it down, uh, and then there's uh, the restrictive licenses, which take the more user-centric and community-centric approach. Uh, and actually impose restrictions on developers and distributors designed to protect <coughs> users. So, um, to make it a little bit more nuanced, we can break up the groups into, into four sort of groups, uh, which are the MIT BSD permissive licenses, uh, the Apache license, licenses, and then the protective licenses, and a fourth category of all the other thousands of licenses that could be anywhere on the spectrum. Um, but generally, even the unique licenses are based on an existing license in this paradigm. And so if you know these, uh, the, I suppose, the, the three main families of the MIT, uh, the second group of, of GPL, and the Apache-style licenses, you'll have a good framework for understanding any software license you come across. Um, so yeah, and then there are sort of the uh, the Apache licenses we won't go into today because that's a, a humongous topic by itself. This is another crossover of in intellectual property 
where uh, that, that style of license tends to address patents um, and issues to do with standardization. So uh, it might be an important license if you're trying to create a technology that forms a, a platform for other people to use. Um, but yeah, it is fairly specialist and uh, would require a 40-minute session on its own. Um, so we'll ignore Apache and just focus on the GPL and the MIT licenses to give you an idea of the kind of licenses everything else will be based on. Um, and then in the, in the sort of niche and quirky uh, areas, there are licenses such as the do what you want license, the buy me a beer license, the pay what you want license, the send me a postcard license, uh, so ranging from useful to hilarious. Um, on the more useful end of the spectrum are the careware and donationware licenses, um, which are designed to, like if your project is not accepting funds but you want to direct them towards a charitable organisation, these licenses are built for that. So uh, they're also a good example of if you have an idea, there's already a license. In fact, there's already two careware and donationware that pretty much do the same thing. Um, but obviously whoever wrote donationware didn't know about careware and so just penned their own license and now we have two of them to deal with. <laughs> so uh, a bit of research on if, if you have some particular idea of what you want to achieve um, and you think oh, no one will have done that, you're probably wrong, someone probably has done it. Um, so the MIT license uh, is one of the permissive ones which uh, as I mentioned, it's uh, quite short, it's uh, 168 words, it's five minutes worth of reading, it's all pretty clear English. So uh, this is a license, I don't, if you're interested in this sort of thing, I highly recommend having read it. Um, it doesn't take long, it's really easy to understand. Um, and the few restrictions it does have are just keeping the uh, author and the copyright assignment clear and keeping a copy of the license with the work. Um, and then uh, effectively, yeah, you do what you want <laughs> with the rest of it. Um, because of its simplicity and shortness, uh, the MIT license is, is uh, the basis of a lot of derivative licenses. Um, so just knowing this license will have you know about over 50% of all the licenses in the world. Uh, there'll be an MIT license with some extra clause tacked on the end. Um, and uh, one of the advantages of the MIT license is that you could, there are so few restrictions, you can use this software in a proprietary project um, without any issues. Um, and a, an example of the flavor of variance you'll get um, is the BSD license is uh, often compared as a, a, an equal to the MIT license. Um, and its uh, little niche area is that it it has clauses in it about um, whether your project can be used in advertising material for another project. So um, as opposed to an MIT license project, if I imported some uh, BSD license project, I couldn't then brag in my advertising material that I'm using this project. Cool. Um, so let's move on to the GPL. This is one of the more restrictive licenses. Um, and as Koji thankfully also explained, focuses on, on user freedoms and not free cost. Um, it is perfectly, it used to actually be a common practice to sell CDs with Linux on it. Um, back in the day when downloading things cost money. 
um, it was very common to actually sell CDs. And what you were selling was the CD and giving away the software. But, um, but there's no restriction on, on money and, and the GPL. Um, the GPL's a lot wordier. It's over 5,000 words, the most recent version, and you can tell it's written by lawyers. Um, it's not an easy document to read through. Um, some of the older versions are reasonably easy, um, but still not a five-minute kind of read-through like the MIT licenses are. Um, but yeah, all of these words are, are focused on preserving those four freedoms. Uh, Koji mentioned the, uh, the right to study, run, modify, and redistribute the software. Um, whereas open source really only protects the study and arguably the run uh, aspects of software. So uh, I suppose uh, the Android example is a good example where, yes, they have published the source code, but trying to get it running is a week's worth of work if, you, if you're trying to do it yourself. So. Um, so uh, yeah, free software, all of these words are focused on preserving these rights going forwards. Um, and so that last uh, term, redistribute, is where a lot of the responsibilities are imposed on you as a developer. Um, if you take a GPL project and modify it and then distribute it, you are now required to preserve those four freedoms going forwards for all users. Um, so this is why a lot of people uh, a lot of developers don't like the GPL because it imposes restrictions on them. Um, but these restrictions are so that the community and users are free from the tyranny of the software developer. Um, and, and we are terrible. <laughs> um, so a couple of variants of the GPL um, uh, at quite drastically different ends of, of variants on the GPL are the lesser GPL. Um, which allows the project unmodified to be included into a proprietary project. Um, so this was seen as a bit of a best of both worlds. You can get the corporate adoption of the MIT license of, of companies will use this in a, in a proprietary project, um, but you also get the preservation of the four freedoms for the project as a whole. Um, and the, uh, the Afero GPL uh, is almost the exact opposite. Um, it was created when uh, project uh, managers were concerned that their project was being, for example, hosted in a cloud service, and the cloud service was uh, responding with data, and they were saying, well, we haven't distributed the, the service to the people. We've hosted the service on our own, and we've just <laughs> distributed the results. And so the Afero GPL redefines distribution as any kind of network access. Um, so that uh, just hosting the project in a cloud doesn't stop you from being responsible for preserving those freedoms. Um, and uh, not strictly a software license, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the Creative Commons licenses. Um, like the free software licenses, these uh, circumvent the automatic assignment of copyright uh, to grant use, modification, and development of projects such as translations, remixing, or inclusion in other works. Um, and it has some standardized restrictions that, you know, you barely have to be able to read English to be able to tell that a little person of by is, you've got to keep the attribution of who this was by. And 
uh, no dollars, non-commercial. Uh, maybe the, the derivatives, non-derivatives, an equal sign isn't so, so clear. But it's very easy to state in a way that uh, everyone can easily understand what their rights are with this work. Um, the main reason to mention it uh, is that the software licenses we've discussed earlier are completely inappropriate for any kind of artwork or documents. Um, if, we, if we look at even the, the ultra-permissive MIT license, it requires you to keep a copy of the license with the work. So if someone had an image and they uh, licensed it as MIT, and I wanted to reuse that image in another image, technically I would have to somehow include the license in there. And if I printed out that image and started distributing it around, technically I should be printing out all of the licenses for all of the images in there and distributing that with every copy of the image. So uh, software licenses shouldn't be used for art and, and likewise the Creative Commons shouldn't be used for, for software. But they, are, they very often overlap. If you're licensing your software open, open source or free software, you probably want your artwork and documentation to be under the Creative Commons uh, as well. So, uh, good, I'm getting towards the end. Um, so things you might want to consider um, for your project, uh, like which license you pick is going to be highly dependent on your goals and what you're trying to achieve. Uh, are you just trying to communicate an idea? Are you trying to help people to be able to achieve something? Are you trying to enable the community to be able to uh, do something it didn't do before? Um, is it important for the community to be more in control of the project than any one individual or company? Uh, then the GPL would probably be the most appropriate license. Um, and there are some interesting case studies, if we've got time at the end, um, for how the GPL has done that. Um, uh, is, it, is it potentially beneficial to have commercial interests involved in the project um, or um, uh, inclusion in a, a proprietary project? Uh, in that case, one of the more permissive MIT-style licenses might be up your alley. Um, and conversely, would it be ethical or unethical for a, a company to commercialise this product? Um, that might also push you one way or the other on the licensing spectrum. Um, and, or do we want to uh, have this technology form the basis of a, an interchange or, or, or a standard? In that case, um, going into the deep, deep well that is the Apache and, and patent licences uh, might be essential. So. We're just about out of time, which uh, the only slide I had left was the list of tons of stuff we haven't covered. Um, so there's, there's lots of side issues on this, um, from enforcement and compatibility is a huge nightmare. Each one of these licenses has a huge list of every other license and its own opinion on them, and whether they're compatible. So. Um, and if you're just interested in general, I run Free Software Melbourne where we talk about these sort of issues. There's also the Open Source Industry Australia who are more business and government facing um, and Linux users Victoria who are more technical facing. Um, uh, and yes, I think that's about it from me. Uh, I think we've got enough time for some Q&A. For, for one Q&A, otherwise you can come and chase us and we've got some stickers down the front if you want to come up and we chat. We take a few questions. One, one, 
<laughs> One question, unless you're skipping afternoon we've, we've tea. We've got at least a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, two minutes. So, so all right. I'll take what if no one else. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Oh, no, no. No, you go. No, no, no. Okay. Um, <laughs> since um, you've asked a few questions already, we'll start with you and then we'll get to you. Yeah. Well, I feel like I've just been dropped into a world I know nothing about. Yeah. It's always fun. Um, and. I feel like there's an underlying assumption in a lot of the stuff around um, tra tracking, particularly uh, surveillance, that like as a trafficker of children, I'm not quite sure I agree. Like I agree with it absolutely. If I adopt the position of somebody who's trading child slaves, and I just wondered if we could have like, maybe, I mean, you guys probably seem very very certain about the assumptions that are underlying. Yeah. Uh, a kind of distrust in surveillance technology, mm -hmm. and I'm just wondering, like, this is why I said it was kind of worked. Yeah. <laughs> what, what what are those assumptions founded on? Because yeah. I do feel like you know there's probably a kind of ethical kind of grey. Mm -hmm. Do we not want our government surveying certain types of behaviour on the dark web? Yeah. I guess the question is, do they need to? Because um, they've got they've got access to. Um, phone records, they've got um, financial things that they track. Um, yeah, whether the, whether they need to um, break encryption to like do law enforcement, that's uh, very questionable. It is. Yeah. The, the thing I'd say is that, like uh, um, criminals have always found ways to communicate that are outside the bounds of monitoring. So you can have an unmonitored phone system or you can have a monitored phone system and if you have a monitored phone system, criminals are going to text each other in in an encrypted in a, a cipher or something like that. Like uh, there, there was a good example of um, like the government can monitor our emails that are actually sent and received. And I, I don't know if it was Al Qaeda or who, who it was exactly, but one of the terrorist organisations got around this by communicating through their draft folder. They never sent a single email. They just kept composing drafts in a shared folder in a shared account. And so, you know, whatever technical means you have to survey people, criminals will find a, a different medium to communicate by. And and the real police work of convicting people is done by putting them at places of, of crimes when those crimes were committed. Yes, you can. Uh, increase the suspicion of a person by showing their communications beforehand uh, and maybe that will help you zero in on them quicker uh, but generally convictions and, and discovery of plots isn't done by blanket monitoring of everything um, so that's where I see like that's why uh, Koji mentioned the whenever you hear someone saying oh I've got nothing to hide so you can monitor all my communications um, that is either the words of someone who doesn't understand the issues on a big level or someone who already has a, another channel of communication. Like if, if, I was, if I was communicating over signal, I'd be saying to the government, and I'm a criminal, I'd be saying to the government, hell yeah, monitor our emails, please. So, you know, it's, it's the, the one step ahead kind of thing, and cat and mouse. It's, it's always been cat and mouse. The criminals have always found channels that police haven't been monitoring. And we've still convicted criminals, so um, that'll be my 
take on it. <laughs> Probably just use a court order to monitor specific communications if there's um, good suspicion that the police. Yeah, and and they do do that at the moment. Um, and and the difference with the the new bill that was introduced and this sort of thing is that uh, we are now coming up with communication channels that are at least in theory unbreakable. So. Um, for example, uh, Dropbox uh, stores your files on the server and you send your file to Dropbox and then they put it on the server and maybe then they encrypt it. Um, there's an alternative uh, <laughs> There's an alternative called um, Spider Oak, which quite deliberately has you encrypt your files and then you send it to them and then they put it on their server. So even the hoster of the data can't unencrypt the data they're hosting oh, for you. Repeat the name. Uh, Spider Oak was. Spider Oak? Yeah. I mean, the particular service isn't uh, important. I'm just pulling out an example yeah. here. But, but yeah, like that company has made it un impossible even for the company hosting your own data to access your own data. Don't Apple do They do. I think they do by default now. Yeah. I, I don't keep up with Apple stuff, to be honest. But uh, yeah. I believe at least all the messaging applications at the moment do this kind of, you encrypt it and then you put it on the channel. Yeah. Um, so that there's, and, and that's why the government wants to be able to mandate that they could get into that channel yeah. somehow. Um, and my, my argument would be, yeah, policing isn't really done that way. You don't suspect someone just because they said bomb and terrorist in an email once. You suspect someone because they associate with a network of people that you know about, uh, and yeah, the, and there's a so body. yeah, and, and, you're, and there's a body. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think there's something missing in yeah. this discussion, and it's about our rights. Mm -hmm. So um, the government's saying that we need to um, ha uh, give yeah. them access to our emails and mm -hmm. um, and encrypted data, but you know, how, how many like how often is this system being abused? Like at the Occupy movement, they were surveilling the um, protesters. Like, um, and there's many other examples that you could look into, like um, Prism, the the mass surveillance program. Like, and that was discovered by Edward Snowden. So, do we want to turn into China? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, if we if we just say yeah, you can do that um, to the government yeah. and don't push back on anything, we might end up being like a China yeah. if we're not careful. And that's the other thing with wiretaps, like with wiretaps you, a police officer goes to a court of law, says I suspect this guy of this, this and this because of X and I, I now want to monitor his communications. Like I have no problem with that, um, but the, the ARS access bill, <laughs> um, the encryption access bill is proposing <clears throat> that this kind of monitoring should be done on everyone all the time. Mm. And if it just happens to be handy, then we'll, we'll pull yeah. it out. Sorry, so, it's or has it been enacted? Oh, it's, uh, um, it's actually being it's reviewed by a committee around. at the moment, yeah. uh, a joint parliamentary committee. Mm. And I think the Senate is going to look at it in November. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you can look at it. Labor's undecided. Liberals are all for it. Labor's undecided. If you... Yeah. <laughs> so, what about yeah. 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 Y
Yeah, so um, the problem with this system is they, they break the security of um, the, the things that we use, that, that everyone uses, right? just so that we can catch maybe a, a few a few people that are doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can I right. add to finish your point? Uh, there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that surveillance improves law enforcement at all. Snopes talks about otherwise. Yeah. It's really about population control and what, what the law enforcement is still just old-fashioned police work. That's yeah. They're not wanting to do law enforcement like the way they used to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. They just want to like, ha, uh, mm -hmm. like data spoon fed to them if possible. But, yeah. like, there's no evidence to back up that like, opening uh, or opening uh, having decryption mechanisms for people that they like, don't want to do. Yeah. 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 Yeah.